السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So inshallah today we're going to begin with the tafsir of Surah Al-Fil uh, last week we, we didn't really go into the tafsir of the surah but what we spoke about last week instead was um, the science of the Makki and Madani surahs and how to determine them and some of the principles in dealing with that, uh, with that particular science as it pertains to our, our tafsir and, and Quranic progression. So that's what we did last week but inshallah this week we're going to now begin with the tafsir of Surah Al-Fil. Surah Al-Fil, as you know, Al-Fil refers to the elephant, right? And it's a surah, as we said when we were speaking about Surah Quraysh, it is closely linked in terms of theme because both of them speak about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's favors and blessings upon Quraysh and upon the people of Mecca in Surah Quraysh because of what Allah gave to them in terms of blessings, in terms of the trade and the commerce that they had, in terms of the unity and the safety and the sanctuary that they were afforded in Mecca. And in Surah Al-Fil, Allah Azza wa Jal gives us, uh, speaks specifically about this topic of the army of the elephants, but it is the same theme because Allah Azza wa Jal is still speaking about their safety and their security and the, and the sanctuary of the city of Mecca. So it is similar in theme in that way, inshallah ta'ala, and as we come through the tafsir of the surah, we will obviously speak about this in more detail. Uh, surah Al-Fil is known by a number of names. It is known by a number of names. Uh, so the most famous of which obviously is Surah Al-Fil. Right? And that's the one that you will find in, in many of the books of Tafsir. Like for example, Imam Ibn Kathir, in his Tafsir, he calls it Surah Al-Fil, right? which means the elephant. Another name that it is also known by is Alam Tara, which is the first two words of the Surah, or the first verse. Alam Tara. And that's the name by which it is referred to, Surah Alam Tara, it is how it is referred to, for example, in Sahih al-Bukhari, in the famous collection of hadith. And Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, refers to it as Surah Alam Tara. And then it is also known as Alam Tara Kayfa Fa'ala Rabbuk. Alam Tara Kayfa Fa'ala Rabbuk. And as we've you know, constantly repeated, continuously repeated in, in our class, it is very common that one of the names or one of the most common names that are given to surahs is usually derived from the first verse, either the all of the first verse, the complete verse, or a portion of that first verse. So, Alam Tara Kayfa Fa'ala Rabbuk. This is a narration that is ascribed to Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah, the famous companion. And then it is also known as Ashabul Fil. Ashabul Fil means the people or the companions of the elephant. Right? And that's obviously taken also from the first verse. Alam Tara Kayfa Fa'ala Rabbuka bi Ashabul Fil. And the name Ashabul Fil was given, or it is mentioned, as being referred to by Ikrima and Al Hassan Al Basri, rahimahumullah. And they are from the famous scholars of the Tabi'een, from the students of the companions. So, therefore, we have how many names for this surah? Four. Right? Al Fil, which is the most common, and that's the one that's most commonly used in our time. Alam Tara, which is what is mentioned in the narration of Sahih Al Bukhari. Alam Tara Kayfa Fa'ala Rabbuk, which is uh, ascribed to Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma and Ashabul Fil, the people or the companions of the elephant and that is a name that was used by Ikrima and Al-Hassan Al-Basri rahimahumullah. This surah is Makki, it is a Makki surah and after we did a whole um, session on what that means last week, who can tell me? What is a Makki surah other than what is? A surah which is revealed pre-hijrah, right? And we said that the scholars, when they speak about how to define Makki and Madani, how many opinions do they have? Three. Three. The first is that it's done by time, right? as we said. So the time is the hijrah. The migration from Mecca to Medina, anything before it is considered Makki, anything after it is considered Madani. And so therefore it is a differentiation by time. The second location. is by location. Right, so it's a literal kind of thing where Makki is literally Mecca and Madani is literally Medina. Right, and we said one of the problems that arises therefore is what about those verses that were revealed neither here nor there? They're revealed in other places, not in Mecca and Medina, like Ta'if, like Tabuk, like other places in, in Arabia. Where do those verses come through? And the third opinion bases it on. 
What was the third opinion? So one was time, one was location, and the third one was based on what? The? No, not number. It is something to do with the verses, but not number. Subject or language style, and so and so those verses that are considered to be like Makki in terms of you know they're short, they're eloquent, they rhyme and so on. They're Makki verses, and the Madani ones are longer and, and whatever. However, as we said, that that's not always the case. So like Surah Al-Nasr is one of the shortest surahs of the Quran, relatively short verses and so on. But it is a Madani surah, right? Whereas Surah Al-An'am is a long surah. It is a relatively long surah, relatively long verses but it is a Makki Surah. So again, that's not a, a, a definition which is you know, always like fail-proof. And so therefore, the definition by time, what is pre-Hijrah is Makki, what is post-Hijrah is Madani, is the one that is easiest and most consistent in terms of using it as a definition for the science. Yes, always. Yes, so this one, this Surah as we're going to come on to is Makki Bilijma'ah. Right, so Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah said here Makkiyatun bi by consensus of the scholars this surah is Makki and likewise Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah in his tafsir said here Makkiyatun ijma'an min ar-ruwa every narration that has come to us says that this surah is Makki and it is said that it is Makki like from the scholars who said that it is also Makki uh, Ibn Abbas, Ikrima, Al-Hasan, Qatada, Al-Zuhri, Muqatil and then from the scholars of tafsir or the authors of tafsir Ibn Kathir, Al-Baghawi Ash-Shawkani, Rahimahumullah, Ajma'een. So all of those scholars, as you can see, mentioned that the surah is Makki. And some of them, like Al-Qurtubin ibn Atiyah said, that it is Bil-Ijma'a. It is by consensus that it is a Makki surah. And obviously it is speaking to the Quraysh about an incident that the Quraysh were aware of, that they knew, and so on. And so therefore it is a Makki surah, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. There are five verses in this surah. So it is a surah which consists of five Verses. Al, there is a couple of hadith and I want to narrate you that speak about or, or at least allude to this um, the incident of the story of the army of the elephants. The first of them is in Sahih al-Bukhari and it is the hadith of al-Miswar ibn Makhrama. That is said that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam lamma atalla yawm al-Hudaybiyyah when he came on the day of Hudaybiyyah and he came towards the valley which would take him into Mecca to Quraysh his, so this is the area that we would come to know as Hudaybiyyah when he got to this place. Barakat Naqatu. His camel sat down. His camel stopped and it sat down. So they tried to move it. Meaning the companions came because obviously the Prophet is leading like the companions, right? They're going for Umrah. He's leading them. There's 1400 odd people and they're not going to do anything before the Prophet So when his camel settles, what happens? The whole of the Muslim camp stops. So when it's settling, they're trying to move it, get it to stand up and to move and to continue. But it wouldn't do so for Alahat, right? It stopped, it wouldn't be moved. So they said, They said that the camel is obstinate, right? Meaning it's refusing to move, it's not listening, we're trying to push it, the Muslim is trying to move it, it's not, it's not doing anything. It's become obstinate. فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ مَا خَلَأَتِ الْقَصْوَاءِ وَمَا ذَاكَ لَهَا بِخُلُقِ So the Prophet said to them, the camel al-qaswa, the qaswa is the name of the camel of the Prophet Qaswa is not obstinate, nor is it from its character to be so. It is not obstinate, nor is it from its character to be so. Meaning what? وَلَكِنْ حَبَسَهَا حَابِسُ الْفِيلِ but it has been stopped by the same thing that caused the army of the elephants to be stopped. Meaning what? Allah is the one who has caused it to stop here. And so the Prophet and this is like, you know, a very interesting hadith. And, you know, we're not going to go through the whole like narration of this hadith, but it's a very interesting point here. How number one, the Prophet is very familiar with the character and the nature of his camel. Right? Just like, I don't know, like, you know, in modern times, everyone knows their car best, right? 
you know, your car, what kind of a car it is, right? It's not exactly a camel or a living animal, but you know your car, how it drives and, you know, how to, how to use the brakes and what the problems that it's got. No one knows that better than you. Someone else drives the car and they may find it difficult for the first, like, mile or two or the first few minutes or, because it's something which they're not used to. The Prophet ﷺ knows his camel. So when the companions are like, oh, this camel is refusing to move, it's obstinate. The Prophet ﷺ said, no, it's not an obstinate camel and it's not in its nature to be obstinate. But the reason it stopped here is for the same reason that the army of elephants was stopped. Meaning Allah just as he caused the army of the elephants to be decimated, destroyed, stopped, wouldn't allow them to proceed any further, he has made my camel stop here as well for a reason that only Allah knows. And obviously later on we come to know that that reason is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And the Prophet knows that it's not her in, in, the, in, in the camel's nature, because it's not the first time. Like when the Prophet ﷺ first came into Medina after the Hijrah, and the companions were coming and trying to take the reins of his camel to take the Prophet ﷺ to his house. Right? You want, they want, everyone wanted the honor of the Prophet ﷺ being the guest in their home. But the Prophet ﷺ used to say to them, leave it alone for innaha ma'mura. It is under command. Meaning Allah will make it stop where he wishes it to stop. And so it went until it came finally to a place and that's where it stopped. So the Prophet ﷺ knew that that was the place that he would disembark. So therefore the Prophet ﷺ knows the nature of his, of his camel. But the point is here, at this crucial point in his life, this is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, right? This is like going to be a monumental event in the seerah, in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It's going to change the course of Muslim history. It's going to change the life of the companions and the nature of da'wah. And from those 1400 companions who were with the Prophet ﷺ in Hudaybiyah, within a couple of years, by the eighth year, the conquest of Mecca, they would have multiplied by almost five and they would be over 10,000 in number. So it's a monumental event. And the Prophet ﷺ is making a link at that time between this simple stopping of his camel with another major event that took place in the history of Quraysh and in Mecca, and that is the army of the elephants. And it shows that the Prophet ﷺ was very astute very aware that when something would happen, he would be able to make connections and he would look for those signs and indications that Allah had given to him. You know, most of us walk around like almost like in a zombie state, right? We just walk around and we don't really pay attention to anything. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us signs, the mistakes that you make, the, the sins that you do. And Allah gives you reminders and he pokes you and he prods you and he, and he tells you that you've made a mistake, you've done something wrong. There are signs that occur. And the Prophet ﷺ would know how to recognize those signs, just as some of the scholars of the past used to say, that I know when I have sinned because of the way that my wife treats me and the way that my riding animal behaves towards me. Meaning that I know that if I leave in the morning and everyone's happy and everything's fine at home, but by the time I come back, everyone's upset for some reason. And I've been away, I've done nothing. Nothing's changed since 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. But all of a sudden, everyone's moods change. No one likes me anymore. No one's talking to me. Everyone's upset. He says that I know it's because of a sin that I committed and I can link it to the way that my family is treating me or the way that my riding animal, my horse, my camel has started to behave. They would be able to, the scholars would be able to link and that's because their sins were, were so, so much less than ours, but they would be able to know that this issue is because of that. And so they would look for those signs and those indications and the reminders that Allah gives. So likewise, the Prophet ﷺ used to see signs and he would be able to link them. Something's happened here. Oh, this isn't just a normal event. It's not just a camel sitting down, which is by itself, independently, a very mundane event, right? Camel sits down, refuses to move. It's not a big issue. But as we will come to the story of the, of, of the army of the elephant, it is something which is mentioned in the narrations that when, uh, when they finally wanted to go in and attack Mecca, and Abraha was trying to command his elephant to go in, one of the narrations says, it stopped and it sat down and it refused to move. Would it move? And some of the narrations says that they took weapons to it, to beat it, and they, to prod it with sharp weapons like the tip of an axe and a spear to get the elephant to move, and to, but it wouldn't move. And if they turned it, one narration says that if they would turn it towards back home, towards Yemen, it would walk. And if they turned it towards Sham, it would move. And if they turned it, turned it towards another direction, it would move. But every time they turned it back towards Mecca, it would sit down and it would refuse to go. Right? 
And so the Prophet makes those connections. In itself, it is a mundane event. It's a simple animal sitting down, refusing to move. But the Prophet sees how it is something which is uh, which is important. And then he says in the hadith, continuing the hadith in Bukhari, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ لَا يَسْأَلُونِ خُطَّةٌ يُعَظِّمُونَ فِيهَا حُرُمَاتِ اللَّهِ إِلَّا عَطَيْتُهُمْ إِيَّاهَا And then he makes a connection between what, the, what his camel is doing, what happened with the elephants, and with the importance of the occasion of where he is and what's going to happen and what's going to take place. And he says, by Allah, or the one in whose hand is my, in, in whose hand is my soul, they will not ask me for anything in which they honor the sanctuaries of Allah and the, and the, and the hudud of Allah, the hurumat of Allah, the sanctuaries of Allah, except that I will give it to them. Anything that they come for and they ask me in which they are honoring the Kaaba and Mecca and these signs that belong to Allah, I will give it to them. I will agree with them. So that's the first hadith and that is in Sahih al-Bukhari. In another hadith, and this time in al-Bukhari and Muslim a hadith which is muttafaqun alayh on the authority of Abu Huraira radiyallahu an that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said on the day of the conquest of Mecca inna allaha habasa an Mecca al-fil wa sallata alayhim rasoolahu wal-mu'minin ala wa innaha lam tahilla liyahadin qabli wa la tahillu liyahadin ba'di ala wa innama uhillat li sa'atan min nahar ala wa innaha sa'ati hadhihi haram he said, Allah Azza wa Jal stopped the army of the elephants from entering into Mecca. But he allowed his messenger and the believers to come and conquer it. Saying what to the people of Quraysh? Saying that doesn't that make you think that Allah Azza wa Jal didn't allow an army of elephants and an army which was far greater in number than the army of the Muslims. But they weren't allowed to enter into Mecca, weren't allowed to come near the Kaaba. But then Allah Azza wa Jal has now allowed me, his messenger and the believers to conquer it. Indeed, it was never made halal, meaning because it is a sanctuary, it is a haram. It was never made halal for anyone before me, and it won't be made halal for anyone after me. Indeed, it was only made halal for me for only a single portion of the day, and from now on, it goes back to being from the haram, from haram, meaning the sanctuary. Right? And again, the Prophet is speaking about the virtues of Mecca, its honor, its status in this religion, and its importance. Uh, not only to him, but obviously to our religion as well. Uh, and, and those are like the two narrations which, which, which explicitly mention the story of the people of the elephant. So what we're going to do, inshallah, before we go into the actual tafsir, Al-Imam um, ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, when he comes to the beginning of this surah, and as we know, Al-Imam ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, isn't just a scholar of tafsir, but he's also a scholar of history. He has famous books on the history, on the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, Al-Bidayah wa Nihayah, is one of the most amazing books that we will find in our religion on history. And so he's an expert in history. And not only that, he's an expert in hadith. He's a scholar of hadith in his own right. And that's why one of the things that's somewhat unique about his tafsir is how often when he mentions narrations of tafsir, he will speak about their authenticity or lack thereof, their weakness in terms of the chain of narrators and whether the hadith is authentic. That's something which he combines a lot within his tafsir. So he's a scholar of fiqh, he's a scholar of hadith, and he is a scholar of tafsir and a scholar of history. So at the beginning of his tafsir of Surah Al-Fil, he mentions a summarized version. He calls it a summary. And Oasis is laughing because he's going to have to read this. But the summary isn't as short as you would think a summary is. It's still pretty long. But basically he summarized <laughs> the story somewhat of the people of, uh, of the elephant, or the story of the army of the elephant, and we're just going to stick to this narration, and I wanted to read it for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I think it's good to have that background. Number two, because it's something which we should do when, when we come to studying tafsir in depth, it's good to actually read from the books of tafsir. And because Ibn Kathir is the only kind of like book of tafsir that's kind of been translated to English in somewhat of a comprehensive manner, um, you know, it's, it's like one of the few Sources. I have the Arabic version here, but that was I was like, oh, that's going to be like crazy trying to translate that. But someone's done the hard work for me, um, and so we're going to read from the the published edition. I think it is anyway of, of the of the Tafsir of Ibn Kathir. And what I'll do, inshallah, I'll, I'll stop every so often, and I'll you know maybe make some comments or annotate on, on some points that aren't so clear. But I'm going to hand over to um, Oase, who in his amazing London accent will. 
we'll begin. So what what he's saying is the story of the people of the elephant follows on from the people of the story of the ditch or the story of the people of the ditch, which is which surah? Which surah? Who are the people of the ditch? Ashabul Ukhdud, right? Which is which surah? Surah Al Buruj, right? Surah Buruj. Right. The people of the ditch have been killed. That's the story, and obviously this is Surah Buruj is still some way away for us. But Surah Buruj is the story of the ditch, which is when they came and they dug a ditch for people who disbelieved, who disbelieved in their idols and, and worshipped Allah alone. And so the king of that time commanded that they all be thrown into that ditch and burned alive. Right, And that's one of the three um, infants in the cradle the Prophet said spoke from the three that spoke as a, as a baby in the cradle, as a, as a newborn baby, three were to speak. From them is the child that was carried by his mother towards the ditch. And when his mother came towards the ditch because she's holding a child, she fears for herself and for her life, obviously. And for her child, you know, falling into a ditch of fire is nothing like to be, you know, it's not, no small issue. And so he spoke and he said to her, oh, my mother, go into this ditch or something. I don't remember the exact wording, but he said, Yeah. Um, there's the one where um, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, per, a person called the head of uh, I think one of the relatives of Surah Ali. Uh, she got there and then she said Bismillah and they ordered all of her children to be put in hot oil. And her, uh, yes, I don't know. I, uh, that's something which I think we need to like, look at again. Like in terms of how many, <laughs> in terms of that's homework, yeah, for someone. Like how many of those are like authentic and whatever. That's like a nice research thing to do. And inshallah, if I remember, I'll, I'll try to do it for next week. But the point is that this was one of those like three that's mentioned in a hadith. So that's the story right, of the people of the ditch, which is in Surah Buruj. So what Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, is saying that the story of the people of that time, Dhunawas is their leader, is the king. That, and, and the people are known as Himyar. And they're also in the area of Yemen. This is in the area of Yemen. And obviously Abraha comes from? Will come from Yemen, right? And so this is, Himyar is is the kingdom that took place in Himyar, in, in, in Yemen. Dhunawas is their king, and he's the one who kills the people of the ditch, right? He's the one who commands the killing of the people of the ditch. Yeah. They were Christian, and their number was approximately 20,000. None of them except a man called Zawj until Ba'ala escaped. He fled to Asham when he sought protection from Caesar, the emperor of Asham, who was also a Christian. Caesar was a Najashi, the king of Ethiopia, who was closer to the home of the man. And the Jashi sent two governors with him, Ayah and Abraha ibn Asbaba Abu Yaksum. Yaksum, yeah. Yaksum, yeah. Yaksum, along with the great army. So, sorry, just to interrupt again. So, what he's saying is basically when, when this happened, this, this massacre of people, a couple of the people escaped. And those people who escaped, they went to Asham, to the Roman Byzantine emperor, and they spoke to him and they asked for him to bring help. And what he did is that the king or the emperor of Rome, instead of going himself, he sent his, one of his uh, vassals, if you like, one of his like other kings, he sent him, and that's a Najashi, who's in Abyssinia, because Abyssinia is closer to Yemen. Then Asham, he sent a message to him saying, you send an army, you're closer, send an army to deal with those people who have killed our friends or our brethren, whoever they may be. Clearly this story that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah is mentioning, and he's obviously a scholar of history, and you know he's, he's one of the scholars, the great scholars of the past. It isn't something which is an authentic narration from the Prophet So this is not a hadith. So this is a narration that's taken from our tradition or our religion. It is most likely a tradition or a narration that's taken from either from the Israeliyat, right, from the tradition of the people of the book, and obviously mixed with some of the akhbar of uh, or the narrations of the Arabs that they had, right, the Arabs of Jahiliyyah, because Obviously, Ahlul Kitab, I'm going to speak about the army of the elephant and Quraysh and Mecca because that's got nothing to do with the Jews and the Christians. They're not really concerned with that. So, he's mixed 
what the Arabs used to have mentioned in their poetry and what he's, he's, he's pieced all of this together. The point being, it is not an authentic narration. This isn't something, it is mentioned by Ibn Ishaq, it's mentioned by historians. And they mention it through their isnads and so on, from the tabi'een who have most likely also heard it from those sources, some from Israeliyat, some from people who have narrated these stories from Mecca and Quraysh. However, it's not an authentic hadith, meaning it doesn't go back to the Prophet And as always, when that is the case, there will always be a great deal of difference of opinion and a great deal of difference of narrations. And the point to remember whenever we do anything similar to this, when we go through the story, for example, if it's the people of the cave in Surah Kahf, or the story of Dhul Qarnayn, or the story of someone else, all of these stories that there is no authentic hadith that speaks about background, speaks about history, speaks about their names and their places and their births and so on. But the scholars of tafsir have mentioned them by way of Israelite traditions. They have mentioned them in their books of tafsir. It is important to remember that Allah and the Prophet didn't refer to them. Number one, because their mention doesn't change what is important for us in terms of lessons and in terms of what we need to take of points of benefit. It is only done to give you added information. It's like background information. Kind of makes the story whole, kind of gives you some perspective, gives you some context, but it's not there for you to believe in, meaning it's not Quran and Sunnah. It may be so, there may be mistakes, there are different narrations, which one of them is more authentic, which one happened, didn't happen, Allah knows best. However, it's there and it's mentioned often in the books of Tafsir, so that you have that context and you have that perspective, but it's important to remember, this is not Quran and Sunnah, we don't deduce rulings from this, there's no fiqh that comes from this, there's no ahkam, there's no halal, there's no haram. It is simply, you know, like a story, right? It is simply that much of a story. And that is the case often with the stories of the Quran, with the scholars of tafsir, go into background where it is not mentioned. And it is often the case that most of that background isn't mentioned in authentic hadith. It's not mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah. Allah only focuses on what is important. And the Prophet only explains what needs explaining because of its importance. And everything else isn't mentioned. Right? So likewise, in the story of the people of the elephant, most of that background isn't mentioned. However, you know, we have these narrations and these traditions. And so we're going to... So a good example of this is a Najashi sends two of his governors, right? Two of his generals. One of them is called Ariyat and the other one is called Abraha. And here in the narration of Ibn Kathir, he says, Abraha bin al-Sabah, Abu Yaksum. However, there is a difference in the books of history. Is Abu Yaksum the same man, Abraha? Or is it a different man? Was he another minister? So you get these differences in different narrations. Yeah. The army entered Yemen and began searching the houses and looting in search of the king who met Dunuat. Dunuat was eventually killed by drowning in the sea. Thus, the Ethiopians were free to rule Yemen with Ariad and Abraha as its governors. However, they continually disagreed about matters, attacked each other, fought each other, and warned against each other, until one of them said to the other, there is no need for our two armies to fight. Instead, let us fight each other in a duel, and the one who kills the other will be the ruler of Yemen. So the other accepted the challenge and they held a duel. Behind each man was a channel of water to keep either from swimming. Ariad gained the upper hand and struck Abraha with his sword, spitting his nose and mouth and slashing his face. But at Doda, Abraha's guard attacked Ariad and killed him. Thus, Abraha returned wounded to Yemen, where he was tested for his injuries, uh, treated for his injuries and recovered. He thus became the commander of the Abyssinian army in Yemen. So basically, therefore, what happens? They kill that king of, of Himyar, and now there's two governors. Right? And obviously, whenever you have two leaders, two governors, two generals, two strong personalities, they disagree who's really in charge, whose word do we take, and so on. So they constantly have fights and skirmishes, and their people are getting involved. So they say to each other, forget this, let's just fight one-on-one, -on -one, the winner takes all. They agree, eventually Abraha will win, and therefore he becomes the governor of Yemen and he becomes the one who's in charge. Then the king of Abyssinia and Najashi wrote to me, blaming him for what had happened between him and Ariad, and threatened him, saying that he swore to tread on the soil of Yemen and cut off his spoil. Therefore Abraha sent a messenger with gifts and precious objects to Najashi to appease him and flatter him, and a, sack of, and a sack containing soil from Yemen and a piece of hair cut from the soil. He said in his letter to the king, let the king walk upon this soil, and thus fulfill his oath. And this is my soul of hair that I sent to you. When Andajashi received this, he was pleased with Abraha and gave him his approval. 
Then Abraham wrote to Elijah, saying that he would build a church for him in Yemen, the like of which had never been built before. Thus he began to build a huge church in Senha, taller and beautifully crafted and decorated on all sides. The Arabs called the Arabs called it Al-Quraysh because of its great height and because one looked at because if one looked at it, his cap would be in danger of falling off as he tilted his head back. So Abraham is saying to this king, obviously the the Yemeni. Uh, or the Najashi of that time wasn't happy with what Abraha had done, this fighting and whatever. So he's, he, he sends him gifts, he sends him precious objects, whatever, he makes up with him. And then he says that I will build you a great church to honor you, right? There are obviously narrations that say otherwise, that say that Abraha saw what the, how the, the Kaaba was, was venerated by the Arabs, how the people used to trade there and gather there, and it, was, it became a, a trading center and whatever. And Abraha became jealous of this, and he wanted people to come to Sana'a, to Yemen instead. And so when he asked people, why is it that they're all going there, and they're not coming here, he, they said, because of the Kaaba. He said, so I will build something similar, bigger and better and greater, so that the people will come here instead. Right? And it's called Al-Qulais, and Qulais, like they said, it is said, it comes from the Arabic word, something like Qalnusa or something. Qalnusa is the cap that you wear on top of your head. They said that it was so big that if you looked up, your cap would fall off, right? That's how big it was when you looked up. And that's where the name comes from. Then Abraham decided to force the Arabs to make their pilgrimage to this magnificent church, just as they had performed pilgrimage to the Kaaba in Mecca. He announced this in his kingdom, but it was rejected by the Arab tribes of Adnan and Qadan. Adnan, the Arab tribes are Adnan Qahtanahu, the Arabs of the peninsula, right? Quraysh, and the other Arabs surrounding them, and so on. Their forefathers are Adnan and Qahtan. And even the Arabs of Yemen used to go to, to the Kaaba, right? They would, because remember in those days, you know, it's not called Yemen, right? It's like, it's like the whole of the Arabian peninsula is one. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, so the Najashi obviously being mentioned is not the Najashi uh, from the time of the Prophet right? The Najashi that gave asylum to the Muslim companions who came and they settled there. Najashi is a title, just like Caesar is a title and President is a title and uh, whatever else is a title. And Najashi is the title that's given to the ruler of that kingdom of Abyssinia. And that kingdom wasn't just Abyssinia, it extended all the way to Yemen. It was a, it was a, a big kingdom during that time. It wasn't just the, the, the area of... Abyssinia, right? And obviously Abyssinia is no more anyway. The Quraysh were infuriated by it, so much so that one of them journeyed to the church and entered it one night. He then released himself in the church and ran away. When his custodians saw what he had done, they reported it to the king Abraham, saying, one of the Quraysh has done this in anger over the house in whose place you have appointed this church. Upon hearing this, Abraham told to march to the house of Makkah, the Kaaba, and destroy it stone by stone. Muqatil bin Suleiman mentioned that a group of young men from the Quraysh entered the church and started a fire in it on an extremely windy day. So the church caught on fire and collapsed to the ground. Due to this, Abraham prepared himself and set out with a huge, with a huge and powerful army so that none might prevent him from carrying out his mission. So two reasons. What happens? Why does Abraham become upset? Different narrations. One of them is that one of the Arabs came from... from whether from Quraysh or from the area surrounding Quraysh, surrounding Mecca, he came to Yemen, perhaps on a business trip or whatever reason, but he came to Yemen and he saw this massive structure and he's like, what's this? What's going on here? And they said, this is our version of the Kaaba. And obviously he became upset at that. He became angry, like, what is this? How dare they? And so he urinated Akramakumullah on it to show his displeasure. And when Abraha heard about this, that incensed him. And he said, I will go and I will destroy the Kaaba. The other narration that's mentioned by, uh, on the authority of Muqatil, Muqatil that we mentioned is, is a common name in, that we use in our tafsir lessons, one of the scholars of tafsir. Muqatil says, he gives a different version of events. And that is that a group of people came from Arabia and they, or from Quraysh in the area and they came and they went and they actually deliberately set it on fire and it burned down. And yet there is a third narration that says that there are that, that those group of people that came were traders, and they had they had lit a fire to cook, right? A fire that as they as you cook a campfire that was close by, but because it was an extremely windy day, the building caught on fire. So it wasn't deliberate, but it was accidental. But either way, whether it's this or whether it's that, something happens that makes Abraha extremely upset, and he vows to go 
and to take down the Kaaba stone by stone, right? Stone by stone. And he brings and gathers a, a major army, not because the Quraysh were a force to be reckoned with. The Quraysh never had an army. They weren't known for warfare. It's not like Rome or Persia. Quraysh is nothing. But Abraha is showing his might and to instill fear within the people of the peninsula and Arabia to show them who, they, who he is, that is not to be trifled with, and to probably impress upon them that they should start coming towards his uh, you know, neck of the woods instead, right? instead of going towards, towards Mecca. What is interesting is there is a hadith that the Prophet said وسلم, that the people will continue to perform Umrah and Hajj after Ya'juj and Ma'juj. Right? So the, the, the Kaaba has always been, it is preserved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah Azza wa will preserve it even after the Dajjal because Ya'juj and Ma'juj come after the Dajjal. So the Dajjal will come, Ya'juj and Ma'juj will come and then people will still go and perform Umrah and Hajj after them. And it's only as the Prophet said in another one of the signs of Yawm Al-Qiyamah when a group of Abyssinians will come, right? he calls them from Habasha. Abyssinians, they will come and they will dismantle it stone by stone and they will throw it into the sea. They will throw its stones into the sea. And the scholars say that that is towards the end of time after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taken the souls of the believers. And Allah azza wa has lifted the Quran and lifted knowledge and there is no one left except the most evil of people and that is when that will take place or after all of the believers have passed away upon earth. But it is interesting because obviously there is a Abyssinian you know, story or sideline or background going on here. And it will be people from that region that will eventually come and destroy the Kaaba towards the end of time. And Allah knows best. You took a lot of great, powerful elephants that had a huge body, the like of which had never been seen before. This elephant was called Mahmoud and it was sent to Abraham and the Jashi, the king of Abyssinia, particularly for this expedition. It has also been said that he had eight other elephants with him. The number was also reported to be 12, plus the large one of Mahmoud, and Allah knows best. So Mahmoud is the name of the elephant, just in case someone was like, what's Mahmoud doing here? Right, Mahmoud is the name of the elephant. Right, Allahu the intention, the intention was to use this big elephant to demolish the Kaaba. They planned to do this by passing chains to the pillars of the Kaaba and placing the other ends around the neck of the elephant. Then they would make the elephant pull on them in order to tear down the walls of the Kaaba all at one time. When the Arabs heard of Abraham's expedition, they considered it an extremely grave matter. They held it to be an obligation upon them to defend the sacred house and repel whoever intended a plot against them. Thus the noblest man of the people of Yemen and the greatest of the chiefs set out to face him, Abraham. His name was Abdul Nasser. He called his people and whoever would respond to his, uh, his call among the Arabs to go to war against Abraham and fight in defense of the sacred house. He called the people to stop Abraham's plan to demolish and tear down the Kaaba. So the people responded to him, and they entered into battle with Abraham, but he defeated them. This was due to Allah's will and his intent to honor and venerate the Kaaba. So as soon as Abraham announces his expedition, I'm going to do this, I'm going to destroy the Kaaba, the Arabs are incensed. Even those who are forced to go to him and to venerate his building that he built and so on, they are incensed because the Arabs have this veneration of the Kaaba. They know the Kaaba, they respect the Kaaba, they have, they give honor to the Kaaba. And so they agreed, or some of them decided that they would stop Abraham, try to stop him in his tracks. From them is one of these leaders of Yemen, a man by the name of Dhu Nafar. And Dhu Nafar, he gathers people, he gathers an army together, and he stops and he tries to stop Abraham's army, and he meets them in battle, but they're defeated. And it's said that Dhu Nafar is captured, and he's kept alive and he's taken, uh, you know, as a prisoner of war to actually go and see, right? He's trying to stop the destruction of the Kaaba. Abraham's like, I will take you as my prisoner and I will take you to Mecca to show you how I will destroy your Kaaba that you've tried to defend, right? But obviously, as Ibn Kathir, Allah says, the army is defeated because Allah has a greater purpose, right? Allah has a greater plan in mind. It's not for, if Abraham is defeated in Yemen, the story doesn't matter, right? And nothing happens and it's not meant, it doesn't have any significance to us. But obviously, Allah has a greater plan in store and so he is taken uh, as he is taken and uh, by and captured and taken along with the army of Abraham. The army continued on its way until it came to the land of Khatham. 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 What's Khatham? Khatham is a famous tribe amongst the Arabs, right? And it is still today, it is still present in the area in, in Saudi Arabia called Asir. Asir is the southern tip of Saudi Arabia as it borders Yemen. Cities like Abha, 
and Najran and, and those kind of places, the area, that, that whole like province is called Asir. And they have a famous tribe they're called Khatam, which is still there today. And you still have its clans present today. And that is obviously a tribe which is historical. It's from the time of the Prophet and before. That's what he's referred. The land of Khatam is that area of that borders modern day Saudi Arabia with Yemen. So these Nufail ibn Habib al Khatami is the leader of of, of Khatam. He's one of the leaders of Khatam. And these are two clans, Shahran and Nahis or Nahas is are two tribes or two clans of Khatam. He gathers them together because he also has a plan to stop Abraha in his tracks as he comes through his lands. They fought Abraha, but he defeated them and captured Nufayl ibn Habib. Initially, he wanted to kill him, but he forgave him and took him as a guide to show him the way to Al-Hijaz. So again, he's defeated. Nufayl ibn Habib is captured instead of killing him. Some relations say Nufayl ibn Habib is the one who suggested this. He said, keep me alive. I will show you the easiest way to get to Mecca. I will be your guide and you can take me. Obviously, I speak the language. I know the people. I know the land. I know the tribes and so on. When they approached the area of the people went out to Abraha. They wanted to well, the people of Taif, the people of Thaqif, right? The, the tribe of Thaqif are the people of Taif. They wanted to appease him because they were faithful for their place of worship, which they called Allah. Abraha was kind to them, and they sent a man named Abu Rijal with him as a guide. So <laughs> instead of Thaqif coming out to stop Abraha, they've come out to make an agreement with him. Right? Because they don't want him to turn on them and to destroy their idols. They have Allat. Right? And obviously Allat will continue to be the idol of a Thaqif and will continue to be in a Ta'if until after, yeah, after the conquest of Mecca when the Prophet sent Qarid ibn Walid and I think it's Al-Mughira ibn Shu'bah and others to go and to destroy the idols. So it's interesting because Thaqif is the same tribe who, what will they do to the Prophet when he comes at the beginning of Islam? They will pelt him. And they will stone him and they will drive him out of the city. And before him, obviously this is you know, a good few decades before, as Abraha is coming, as the other Arab tribes are thinking, how do we stop Abraha? This is crazy. How can he come possibly and do this to the Kaaba? Thaqif are only worried about, about themselves, right? Which shows you the nature of a tribe and the way that it thinks and so on, right? And that's why when the Prophet wasallam before the Hijrah, when he would go to the different Arab tribes and speak to them, and he would have Abu Bakr with him, one of the things he would ask Abu Bakr is, what is the nature of this tribe? What are they known for? Some are known for integrity, for courage, and some are known for to be more devious and treacherous, or to have their self-interests in mind. Okay? Many years of training. And they send, they send a guide, right? Abu Rigal. Abu Rigal is a man that they send and they say, look, take him instead and he will guide you from Taif. He's obviously relatively close to Mecca. And they reached a place known as Al Mughamas, which is near Mecca. They settled there. Then he sent his troops on a parade to capture the camels and other gazing animals of the Bakrins, which they did, including about 200 camels belonging to Abdul Muttalib. Who is Abdul Muttalib? grandfather of the Prophet right? He is obviously the leader of Quraysh at this time. The leader of this particular expedition was a man named Al-Aswad ibn Masud. According to what Ibn Ishaq mentioned, some of the Arabs used to satirize him. Ibn Ishaq is one of the famous scholars of, of history. His, his uh, famous history is called Sirah ibn Ishaq, is one of the primary sources of history and, and Sirah, yeah, and Sirah and history, yeah. According to what Ibn Ishaq mentioned, some of the Arabs used to satirize him because of the part he played in his historical, in his historical, in this historical incident. Then Abraham sent an emissary named Hanata Hanata al-Himyari to enter Mecca, commanding him to bring the head of the Quraysh to him. He also commanded him to inform him that the king will not fight the people of Mecca unless they try to prevent him from the destruction of the Kaaba. You see Hanata? Hanata, yeah. Hanata went to the city and was directed to Abdul Muttalib ibn, uh, ibn Hashim, to whom, he, to whom he relayed Abraham's message. Abdul Muttalib replied, By Allah, we have no wish to fight him, nor are we in any position to do so. This is the sacred house of Allah and the house of his Khalil, Ibrahim. If he wishes to prevent him, uh, i.e., Abraham, from destroying it, it is his house and his sacred place 
to do so. And if he lets him approach it, by Allah, we have no means to defend it from him. So Hanafa told him, come with me to him. And so Abdul Muttalib went with him. When Abraham saw him, he was impressed by him. Because Abdul Muttalib was a large and handsome man. So Abraham descended from his seat and sat with him on a carpet on the ground. And that's like a, you know, like, uh, well, a difference in narrations and in interpretation. So Abraham now is asking for the leader of Quraysh to come to say, get out the way, don't, I'm just going to destroy the Kaaba, I have no interest in killing you. Abdul Muttalib is leader of Quraysh and he's brought to Abraha. This narration seems like it is out of respect that Abraha comes off his throne and he sits with him on, on the rug right down below. And other narrations say, no, he did it because he didn't want Abdul Muttalib to come up to him, to sit with him on his throne. He didn't consider him worthy. So he came off instead, so as not to, you know, like, you know, I'd rather come down to you than you come up here and sit with me, right? Either way. Then he, i.e. Abraham, asked his translator to say to him, what do you need? Abdul Muttalib replied to the translator, I want the king to return my camels, which he has taken from me, which are about 200 in number. Abraham then told his translator to tell him, I was impressed by you when I first saw you, but now I will draw from you after you have spoken to me. You are asking me about 200 camels, which I have taken from you, and you need the matter of a house, which is the foundation of religion and the religion of your father, which I have come to destroy, and you do not speak to me about it. Abdul Muttalib said to him, Verily, I am the lord of the camels. As for the house, it has its own lord who will defend it. Abraham said, I cannot be prevented from destroying it. Abdul Muttalib answered, Then do so. It is said that a number of chiefs of the Arabs accompanied Abdul Muttalib and ordered Abraha, a third of the wealth of the tribe of Tihana, if he would withdraw from the house. But he refused and returned Abdul Muttalib's camels to him. So they go and they have this conversation, and Abdul Muttalib says, You took my camels, give me the camels back. Abraha is surprised. You have like this maze, uh, massive army. We've come to destroy your city, to destroy the foundation of your religion, to destroy this house that not only you, but all of the Arabs venerate. And you're worried about your camels. Right? And that's where you get that famous statement that is attributed to Abdul Muttalib. I am the lord of the camels. As for the house, it has its own lord. Right? And then obviously they, they leave. Abdul Muttalib then returned to his people and ordered them to leave Mecca and seek shelter at the top of the mountain fearful of the excesses which might be committed by the army against them. Then he took hold of the mechanism of the door of the Kaaba, and along with, a number of, uh, along with a number of Quraysh, he called upon Allah to give them victory over Abraha and his army. Abdul Muttalib said, while hanging onto the ring of the Kaaba's door, there is no matter more important to any man right now in the defense of his livestock and property. So, O oh my Lord, defend your property. Their cross and their cunning will not be victorious over your cunning by the time the morning comes. According to Ibn Ishaq, then Abdul Muttalib let go of the metronome of the door of the Kaaba, and they left Mecca and ascended to the mountain tops. Muqatil ibn Sulaiman mentions that they left 100 animals uh, tied near the Kaaba, hoping that some of the army will take some of them without a right to do so, and thus bring about the vengeance of Allah upon themselves. So the, the translation of this isn't very clear. These hundred camels, so they, you know, he's making dua to Allah, oh Allah, save your house, protect your house, and so on. And then he, along with the rest of Quraysh, go into the mountains, right? Because they don't obviously want to be caught in, in the midst of this army. They leave a hundred camels according to the narration of Muqatil. A hundred camels, he says, muqallada, right? Tied. And what it actually means is the Arabs used to have this, and something which Allah Azza wa Jalla mentions in the Quran. Uh, Qalaid in Arabic language is refers to a, it is kind of tying up, it's a way of marking an animal that has been given over to sacrifice. So what the Arabs would do, for example, if they're coming from Medina and they're going to Mecca for Hajj and they bring their camels and their sheep and their livestock that they're going to sacrifice, they would tie them, they would put a, a collar around them. Right? And, they, and it's to mark the animal that this is an animal for sacrifice. It's not for hunting, it's not for eating, it's not for someone. And even bandits, it is said, and people who would normally steal, they wouldn't touch those kind of animals because they have been marked. These are for the haram, therefore to be sacrificed in Mecca. And that is what Allah Azza wa calls in the Quran, qala'id, right? which is the plural. 
muqallada. So these are 100 camels that they have marked out that they will be sacrificed for the haram. So that if some of the army of Abraha come and they take them unjustly and they kill them, in the hopes that Allah would send his punishment upon them because now they have transgressed even more. Right? They've come and they've transgressed a step even further. That is what is being referred to. When morning came, Abraham prepared to enter the sacred city of Mecca. He prepared the elephant named Mahmur. He mobilized his army and they turned the elephant towards the Kaaba. At that moment, Mufayr bin Habib approached it and stood next to it. And taking it by its ear, he said, Neil, Mahmur. Then turn around and return directly to whence you came. For verily, you are in the sacred city of Allah. Then he released the elephant's ear and it knelt. After which Mufayr bin Habib left, so this narration says that in the morning when they're ready to begin battle, he comes and obviously there is a difference of opinion that we will come to as to the number of elephants, right? Al-Fil is referring to one elephant, right? The elephant, right? Which is the elephant that Abraha has. Were there more? Was it only the one? How many more? And so on. There is no clear evidence that we have, no clear narration from the Prophet but there are a number of opinions as we will discuss later. And some of them have already been mentioned in this story by Ibn Kathir rahimahullah. So Nufayl ibn Habib, who is this man who came from where? Which one is he? Or have we already lost track of the story? Khath'an. He's the one that came from Khath'an. He was the one who said, I'll be your guide. This narration says that he actually did that in, uh, in order to try to subvert uh, Quraysh, or subvert Abraha from destroying Quraysh and destroying the Kaaba. So on this morning, as they're ready to commence battle, he comes and he whispers into the elephant's ear, kneel, sit down, stop for it, and go back, and only go back in the direction that you came, meaning don't go forward. If you're going to move, you have to move away from Mecca, not go towards it. For verily you are in the sacred precinct of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the haram of Allah azza wa jal. Okay. Abraham's men beat the elephant in an attempt to make it rise, but it refused. They beat it on its head with axes and used hook staff to pull it out of its resistance and make it stand, but it refused. So they turned him towards Yemen, and he rose and walked quickly. Then they turned him towards Asham, and he did likewise. Then they turned him towards the east, and he did the same thing. Then they turned him towards Mecca, and he knelt down again. Right, so this is why I mentioned towards the beginning, right, when we were speaking about the hadith, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had, had ordained something to happen with, the camel of the Prophet right? Similar to this, they're poking it, they're stabbing it, they're trying everything to get this elephant to move, it refuses. And he will go in any direction and move towards any direction except the, except, except the direction of Mecca and except the direction of, of the Haram, right? Then Allah sent against them the birds from the sea, like swallows and herons. Each bird carried three stones the size of chickpeas and lentils, one in each claw and one in its beak. Everyone who was hit by them was destroyed, though not all of them were hit. They fled in panic along the roads, asking about the whereabouts of Nufayl, that he might point out to them the way home. Nufayl, however, was at the top of the mountain with the Quraysh and the Arabs of the Hijaz. The Hijaz is what? The province, right? Hijaz is the name of the province of Mecca, Medina, that whole area is called Hijaz. Observing the wrath which Allah has caused to descend on the people of the Nufayl then began to say, where will they flee when the one true God is the pursuer for Al-Ashra, is defeated, and not the victor? Ibn Ishaq reported that Nufayl said these lines of poetry at the time. So th this is obviously poetry that, that Ibn Ishaq just mentioned. Obviously when it's translated into English and read in a London accent, it doesn't have the same, same kind of like, you know, <laughs> impact. But that's basically what it is. If you go to Ibn Kathir, these are actually verses of poetry that, that they ascribe. But anyway, we'll read them. Not that they're going to make much sense to us uh, because of the translation, it's not going to flow. But anyway, carry on. Didn't you live with the continuous support? We favored you all with the revolving eye in the morning, i.e., a guide along the way. If you saw, but you did not see it at the side of the rock covered mountain, that which we saw, then you, then you will excuse me and praise my affair. And do not grieve over what is lost between us. I prayed Allah when I saw the birds, and I feared that the stones might be thrown down towards us, so down upon us. So all the people are asking about the whereabouts of Nufayl, as if I have some debt that I owe the Abyssinians. So basically, he's saying, and this is all his poetry, right, that I came with you, 
and I was telling you along the way, don't do this, don't come. I'm giving you these signs and you didn't pay any attention. And now that you're being destroyed, now you're like, where's Nufail? Help me, Nufail, whatever. Right? That's what he was kind of saying. Yasar, Atah ibn Yasar. Atah is the famous scholar of Tafsir Atah, rahimahullah. Atah ibn Yasar and others said that all of them were not struck by the torment at this hour of retribution. Rather, some of them were destroyed immediately, while others were gradually broken down limb by limb while trying to escape. And there is no authentic uh, narration from the Prophet ﷺ that this is how it happened. Allah doesn't mention this in detail, but it is a statement of some of the scholars as we will come in, in the tafsir of these verses that they said that some of them died immediately after being struck by these pebbles or these stones and others didn't die immediately but they were tortured or they were punished over a long period of time as they were walking and fleeing parts of their bodies were falling off they were gradually being destroyed or gradually dying and you know like parts of their limbs were falling off and, and whatever and this is what he's saying Abraham was of those who were broken down limb by limb until he eventually died in the land of Qur'an Qathan, yeah. Qathan, yeah. Ibn Ishaq said that they let Makkah be struck down and destroyed along every path and at every water spring. Abraham's body was afflicted by the pestilence of the stones and his army carried him away with them as he was falling apart piece by piece until they arrived back in Sana'a. When they arrived there, he was but like a baby chip of a bird and he did not die until his heart fell out of his chest. So basically, some of the army was destroyed immediately Others were struck by the stones, but they died over time. And this narration says that Abraha was from amongst those who were slowly dying of, of, it was almost like kind of a leprosy or a pestilence, a disease that had affected him that was causing parts of his body to fall off. And that lasted from Mecca all the way back to Khatham, right? Khatham is the border again, right? And that's a very long distance. It's like hours of journeying by car, let alone by foot or however he went back. So all of this time he's being punished and punished and punished until by the time he gets towards the lands of Khatam, like he's nearly back towards Yemen he's like lost so much of his body and whatever that he's almost like the uh, you know a bird right he's, he's, he's become like so small in stature and then he finally passes and again this is like nothing that we have in authentic hadith and Allah knows best Ibn Ishaq said that when Allah sent Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the Prophet among the things that he used to recount to the Quraysh as blessings that Allah had favored them with of his bounties was his defending from them from the attack of the Abyssinians. Due to this, the Quraysh were allowed to remain safely in Mecca for a period of time. Thus, Allah said, No, no, that's okay. Uh, have that's you not seen how your Lord dealt with the owners of the elephants? Did he not make the plot? Did he not make their plot go astray? And he sent against them birds in flocks, striking them with stones of sajid, and he made them like us, Makhul. So, and that's basically where, you know, where we're going to stop from the tafsir of Ibn Kathir. That's basically where he stops that summarized version of his story. Um, and basically what he's saying at the end is that these two surahs, Surah Al-Fir and Surah Quraysh, one of the things that makes them so important and so impactful, so powerful to the Quraysh and the people of the time of the Prophet is what? Is because these are events that have taken place in what we would call living memory right these are not things that have come from the times of Ibrahim or Noah centuries generations before stories that are so old that there's no one that can understand it's not something which you connect to on a first like person contact basis because they are so old right they're from generations and centuries ago this and Surah Quraysh are things that the Quraysh see and witness themselves and in, this, in the case of Surah Al-Fil and the story of the army of the elephant, it is something which takes place in living memory. There are people who when the Prophet ﷺ comes with Islam, because remember, and this is something which we'll, we'll touch upon as well, but the Prophet ﷺ is born in which year? The year of the army of the elephant. So he's born in this year. And the Prophet ﷺ takes prophethood when? At the age of? 40. So this is only 40 years ago. Right? Just like today we have people that lived through World War II, Right? And we have people that live through like, you know, 70, 80, 90 years old. They remember that history. You know, you have those like ceremonies that they have every year where they go to those places to remember those events and commemorate them. Those are people who are there, right? And they've seen them. And for them, it takes on a different meaning 
to me and you who weren't born and we don't really understand and we were born like decades later, we see them on the TV and for us it's like, it's like there's a disconnect there. But for them, look how solemn they are, how serious they are, how they stand to attention, how they'll stand for like minutes in silence and they'll travel even though some of them are really old and infirm and weak now in wheelchairs, but they will still go because of the importance of the occasion and what it meant to them. And Allah is saying to them, Alam tara, did you not see? Right? And we'll come on to, does that mean, did you not see, as in physically see, because there are people who witnessed this? Or did you not know? Because it's so close that even if you didn't see, your father probably saw, your uncle saw, your grandfather saw, your mother saw, your older siblings probably saw, because this is only 40, 50 odd years ago before the revelation of this surah. And so this is something in living memory. Allah is saying, what greater sign do you need? about Allah and his power and his ability when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed you this event and, he, and you saw it and there are people amongst you who remember that event and they were witness to it, right? People who are older than the Prophet people like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab and these people who are older in age and they were there, maybe they were young in age at that time, but they were there and they witnessed the event and they saw it firsthand and they have firsthand accounts as to what it is that this refers to. So this is the story that Ibn Kathir mentions and I think it was uh, not only good to do that but also it's good to read anyway from the books of Tafsir um, because of you know there is always barakah and blessing in reading from the books of Tafsir and I know that we're, we're kind of like um, you know like we're probably coming towards the end of the lesson but before I take a couple of questions um, I just want to finish uh, off by mentioning Uh, a couple of other narrations, and that is what Muhammad ibn Ka'ab and some of them said. Uh, he says in his narration of the same story that there were two elephants. One of them refused to uh, to move, and that's Mahmud, or the, the main elephant. And there was another one that started to run rampage, started to cause problems and rampage amongst the people of uh, or the army of the elephants. Um, and then yeah, and then we have the other statements as well. But the statement that I want to finish with, uh, or a couple of the statements that I want to finish with, one of them is the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha. She says that I saw one of the people who was leading the elephant, and one of the carers of the elephant, blind and immobile, paralyzed, begging for food in the streets of Mecca. Right to show you how this is something which is still a first kind, is still very you know, like when you said living recent memory. If this narration is authentic for Aisha radiallahu anha, and Aisha radiallahu anha is young in age, right? She's much younger than the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. She's saying that I saw in my time in Mecca as a child people who were from the army of the elephant that survived, but they're more or less paralyzed. They're muqadin, mean they can't walk, they can't move, they're immobile, and they're a'ma, they're blind, and they're holding out their hands, asking people for food in in Mecca. And Imam al-Qurtubi. Rahimahullah Ta'ala said that this story of the elephant is from the miracles that was given to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam even though the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam wasn't alive. Meaning it's not a miracle that was given directly to him, it's not a miracle that was shown at his hands, but it was a miracle that was given during his time to prepare for his birth and for his coming, for his arrival Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that's because there are people who witness this. And so when Allah Azza wa makes mention of this story, it's something which strikes a chord with the people of, of, uh, of Quraysh. And then he mentions the statement of Aisha, and he mentions the statement of Abu Salih, who says that I saw in the house of Ummu Hani. Who is Ummu Hani? No, Ummu Hani. Ummu Hani is the sister of Ali. Ummu Hani bint Abi Talib. Ummu Hani. Anha, the sister of Ali, the daughter of Abu Talib, she says, he says that I saw in her house two of the pebbles that had came to come down from in the, in, in the army of the elephant, two of those pebbles she had, uh, or two of those stones of clay she had within her house. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Okay, any questions before we conclude? We have one online. Uh, Sumaira, it, it is interesting that Yemen and Abyssinia came under Christian rule, majority Christian the area of Asham at that time under Christianity at the Arab, Arabian Peninsula in between somehow predominantly polytheist with pockets of Jews. Has anyone ever commented on why this was so? So I think the best like thing that I've read about this as to why the Arabs generally, the whole peninsula, wasn't really conquered by anyone, right? And you don't really find, yes, you have those pockets of Jewish tribes and so on, but you don't really find, you know, a big wave of Jews and Christians and so on. 
uh, within the Arabian Peninsula, nor do you find that the Romans and the Persians, even though this is on their footstep, like this is literally on their doorstep, they don't enter and they don't invade. And, they don't, and that's because the Arabs, were, the Arabs were Qabail, they were tribes and they were clans and they were people who were fighting with each other, petty stuff, they didn't have empires, they weren't really a threat to anyone else. You know, they, they weren't like looking to conquer lands or anything. They were just so busy dealing with their own politics and their own problems that they had no clear leadership, no clear structure, no clear politics, no clear anything. That the whole situation was so crazy and it's all desert anyway. Why would you conquer that land? There's nothing there. There's no like, you know, it's not like today with this oil and stuff. There's nothing there. It's empty. It's desert. It's barren land. There's no food. There's no drink. There's no water. And so that, therefore people didn't really pay attention to that whole area and it's something which people didn't really you know really bother with and that's why it is mentioned in one of the narrations when the prophet comes to one of the tribes to call them to islam when he's in that period of time when he's looking for people to give asylum to the muslims one of the tribes is a tribe that was near the area where the romans and the persians were right towards the northern part of the arabian peninsula and when he spoke to them they said we like the message that you're preaching but we live in an area between the persian empire on one side and the roman byzantines on the other side and the only reason they leave us alone and we don't get involved and they don't fight us is because we don't take sides. We don't become involved in any problems. We stick, you know, so we stay neutral. We don't deal with any issues. And we fear that if you come and the Quraysh follow you, then they will think, okay, what's going on here, right? This is on our doorstep. Then they will become involved, right? And that's something which is mentioned in some of the books of the Seerah. And so that seems to be the case in Allah knows best that because the Arabs kind of kept to themselves when a threat didn't do anything, People don't really pay them any mind, any attention, and Allah knows best. Yeah, Abdul Muttalib is not his name. His name is Shayba or something. Uh, yeah, Shayba is his name. Abdul Muttalib, Muttalib is his uncle. Yeah, Abdul Muttalib is his uncle. Muttalib is his uncle. Abdul Muttalib means obviously servant of Muttalib. And that's because when uh, Shayba, when he, he was with his, uh, he was young in age and he was with his father and they were traveling with Muttalib. And Muttalib is his uncle, they were traveling together, his father passed away. And Muttalib, who's his uncle, took him and brought him back to Mecca. And when the Meccans saw him, because he was so young in age, they hadn't seen him for a long time because he'd been away, they thought that Muttalib had bought a servant, a slave, and he'd brought him back to Mecca with him as a slave. This child is his slave that he's bought. So they started calling him Abdul Muttalib and then they realized that no, actually it's his nephew and he's the son of, 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 of Hashim and, but the name stuck and he became known by it. And Allah knows best. Okay, Jazakumullah khair, inshallah. Next week we are here at 8.30. We're going to start 8 o'clock is salah and then 8.30 inshallah we begin our lesson. Barakallahu feekum wa salam bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.